Romans 8, commencing at verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. For those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those who God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now in all these things we we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good afternoon. It's good to join you uh, wherever you are. And uh, great that we have this opportunity now to sit under God's word. Hopefully you've got your Bible open in front of you. Uh, You're going to need it. In 1959 and in 1960, 
President John F. Kennedy used these words in his uh, campaign speeches. In the Chinese language, the word crisis is composed of two characters, one representing danger, the other opportunity. And so whenever there is a crisis, highly paid management consultants trot out that same aphorism. Crisis equals danger plus opportunity. Yes, we've got a problem. But let's find that golden opportunity from which we can make lots of money in the midst of this crisis. Now, the only problem with this was that JFK was wrong. Well, at least he was wrong about the Chinese language. Well, perhaps kindly he was misled. Uh, Putting it nicely, there is only an element of truth in what he is saying. Uh, I'm told by those who know the Chinese language that more accurately, those Chinese characters for crisis really mean danger at the point where things happen. Not quite the same. However, in the very same way that JFK meant uh, that saying, there is just a slice of truth in the advice. Don't waste your pandemic. Now, I doubt that any of us, or many of us at least, were alive for the Spanish flu pandemic at the end of World War I, which killed more than 50 million people worldwide. Despite a swift quarantine response in October 1918, uh, in early 1990, uh, 40% of the population of Australia fell ill, with the result that around 15,000 Australians died from the Spanish flu. And so in the midst and at the end of such a tragedy, the only real opportunity to learn was not to let it happen again. And so here we are again, perhaps a little bit wiser, but only time will tell. And there may be something for us to learn here if we pay attention. So in that sense, let's not waste our pandemic Now, since we learned last Wednesday that church was now going to look very different for some time, all of our big programs cancelled, events cancelled, our small groups operating in very different ways perhaps, since that time I've been thinking, well, what is the slice of good that might be hidden in this crisis? Undoubtedly, some of us will suffer, uh, perhaps financially, perhaps with poor health. But in the midst of it all, I think there is the opportunity for us to grow as Christians and to grow as a church. This can be the time when we embrace the truth that church is not a meeting, but it's people. We don't attend church. We are the church. We're not a club or an organization to support. From God's perspective, we are a people bonded to his Son in solidarity and unity, which is the basis of our salvation and the substance of our hope. Maybe we'll only really grasp this now that our big meetings and programs are set aside for a while. We have to meet online in this strange way. Perhaps we'll only know this as we meet in ways that only the persecuted church might relate to, might know about already. So in our series, Portrait of a Disciple, of which we're continuing, this somewhat different talk might be called The Hope of a Disciple, even in uncertain times. Now, I don't imagine 
that when the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans somewhere around about 60 AD that he ever imagined our situation. And yet I think here we find great comfort and great hope from the perspective that he gives us. So with our fears and our frustrations, with a sense of anxiety perhaps or bewilderment, we ask God, how do I cope? How do I live through this? And so we turn to Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 18. If you haven't already, grab that Bible. I'm going to do something now that if this was television, this would be a disaster. But because it's not television, it's church, I'm actually not going to say anything for a little while because I want you to take this opportunity once again to read quietly through the passage. Hopefully you have found yourself in a quiet space in your home or in your lounge room. Perhaps you're with others. Let's now focus our attention on what God is saying in his word to each one of us. So I'm going to give you space and time to read through that passage again. And as you do read, you might like to note down either mentally or even on a piece of paper some questions. What, what questions do you have arising from this passage? And if those are not answered through the rest of the sermon, then you know that you'll be able to text them in at the end. I'm at verse 18 now, the very first verse does set us within some kind of crisis. In verse 18, Paul says that we do live in a time of tension caught between the present and the future. Verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So on the one hand, we have our present sufferings and on the other, we have our future glory that will be revealed in us. Now, it's helpful to know that this word sufferings here, is, it's a pretty general sort of a word. It, it often points to the usual experiences of our lives in the present day. But here in chapter 8, whatever struggle Paul is referring to, at very least, he's referring to our sufferings shared with Jesus Christ. You see the reference back in verse 17. Our struggle for godliness as the Spirit opposes and conquers our fallen human nature. And this helps us to understand that our present sufferings and challenges, these are spiritual struggles, as well as very real physical, emotional or health struggles, whatever they might be. Whether we are facing sickness or loneliness, an important relationship may be under stress for you, finances could be a source of anxiety, our faith might be under fire, Doubt may be slithering in. Our hearts may be cold or indifferent. Yes, our present is marked by sufferings. But, and here is the important point, but in comparison to our future glory, these sufferings are small. We're not pretending that they are unimportant. But we are comparing them to our future situation when Jesus returns and claims us as his own on one side of the scale we've got our sufferings and on the other side we have the glory that will be revealed in us by comparison our sufferings are small and they are temporary it's like when you go to Penrith and you look up at the blue mountains in front of you and if you're walking up those mountains or you're riding your bike you know, this is going to be a tough climb. 
Uh, you're going to go up through Glenbrook, uh, sorry, yeah, Glenbrook and then Springwood, uh, Wentworth Falls, Katoomba, and finally you get to the peak at Mount Victoria. That's a big mountain to climb, over a thousand meters above sea level. Until you compare that with Mount Kilimanjaro, that's a mountain. 5,800 metres above sea level. Or Everest, that's a mountain. In the same way, our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be ours. And this actually sets the framework for the rest of chapter 8, where the future puts the present into its right perspective. We find ourselves living in this tension between the present and the future. Our lives are shaped by these twin realities. Our present sufferings, like the Blue Mountains, are small when compared to our future glory. And it's this present-future perspective that actually enables us to flourish in these uncertain times. That's what we're going to notice now as we work our way through the rest of chapter 8. Our hope anchors our present in the future. So to verses 19 through 21, where they show us that the frustration and the groaning and the decay of our present reality is very real. This applies, in fact, to all of creation, which, according to verse 20, has been locked down with humanity in sin. And because of that, the planet's not quite right. It is not able to fulfill its intended purpose properly. It's frustrated. Following on from the curse in Genesis chapter 3, work is hard and weeds grow. The environment is not always our best friend. We get heat waves and bushfires and floods and viruses. And the, if the past six months have not shaken us out of our complacency, our pretended control and self-sufficiency, I don't know what will. It should be obvious that this is not how things are supposed to be. We have not arrived yet. We are not in control. We are not God. Instead, along with us, Creation is waiting eagerly for the return of Jesus when God's children will be revealed. And in that day, creation too will enter into God's freedom and glory. It will enter into a completion that it does not now have. So these verses 19 through 21 paint an honest, somewhat bleak picture of our present. But embedded in those verses... And explained further in verses 22 through 25 is our future glory, our hope. So have a look with me in your Bibles at verse 22. I'll read it out again. Verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit Grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. 
But hope that is seen is not hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. The key word to look for there is hope. Do you see there at the beginning of verse 24? For in this hope we were saved. Which hope? Well, it's the hope that he has just described back in verse 23. Our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Back in verse 18, we saw that at the end of it all, God will reveal his glory in us. That is to say, all of God's radiant goodness, purity, majesty, power and wonder will be seen in us. We will be so transformed, so filled and overflowing with God's character that we will be absolutely recognisable as brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll have his family likeness. Verse 23 is simply unpacking that idea of glory a little bit more. Revealing God's glory includes being adopted as his children and having our bodies redeemed from death. We are set free from the bondage to decay. Addictions are broken. Pain is healed. Disease is gone. There are no more tears. I am looking forward to that life of the new creation, perfect, untainted, and unending. That word sonship, the reference to sons in verse 23, might be a little troubling for us. Why does it matter that we are adopted as sons? Well, because it means that we inherit in just the same way that only sons could in first century Roman culture. Adopted as God's sons, it's actually a technical legal term being used, means that ultimately we inherit his kingdom. So our hope, our forward-facing faith, if you like, anticipates our complete and glorious transformation into Christ-likeness. New bodies that are sharing the Lord Jesus' rule over the new creation. That is the place that we direct our thoughts and our imaginations because that is our future stretching out before us. You see, hope that is in the present is anchored in that future. Hope is what creates the tension between present and future. It's like an anchor that is firmly wedged into the ocean floor uh, holding the ship secure in the midst of the great big storm swirling above it. Except our anchor is fixed in the future glory that is guaranteed by the finished work of Jesus Christ. It orients us, it gets our perspective right, even in the midst of a pandemic, especially in the midst of a pandemic. And it seems to me that Paul's aim in the rest of this passage in Romans 8 is simply to feed and strengthen that hope. He wants us to know how the present gets to the future. And so, as we move on to verses 26 and 27 now, we see that just as creation groans, now also the Spirit groans within us as He intercedes on our behalf. 
He gives expression to our deep yearnings to be free from the effects of sin. And he trains us, actually, to pray the things that we should pray or pray the things that we would pray if we could see our final hope, which we cannot yet. So you can't get prayer wrong. I think I said that a few weeks ago. We just come to God. We don't even have to have the right words. And the Spirit helps us to pray. Prayer is foundational to hope. Prayer strengthens hope. Uh, that's why we've set up uh, the St. Andrew's Prayer Link. Um, this is something that will uh, grow increasingly over the next few weeks. This coming week, we're going to pray together as a church in a virtual prayer meeting. And uh, you can find out how to join in to that prayer meeting from the comfort of your own lounge room if you go to 2020discipleship.com and then prayer link. Okay, There's a menu there or there's a page there. We'll also have this email uh, we'll email out this address to you. Everyone can join in together as we pray. The main idea, though, in a passage here is the substance and the strength of our hope is anchored in our future glory. And that anchor image, I think, uh, makes a lot of sense of the pretty tricky theology that now unfolds for us in verses 28 through 30. So have a look at your Bibles again at verse 28, and I'll read it out. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be confirmed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. These verses tell us that we can face the present, all things in the present, confident that God's plan will surely be achieved. God's plan for this world, God's plan for your life cannot be thwarted cannot be derailed by anything in the present. Instead, God will achieve his good purpose. But what is God's good for us? Well, the answer is in verse 29. God is making us like his son, Jesus Christ. That is, we are to be glorified as he is glorified. God will reveal his glory even in us, as we saw in verse 18. Notice, though, that this glory is actually the culmination of a series of events that take place. So verse, in verse 29, we are told that God foreknew us. Somehow or other, God entered into a knowing, a relationship with us before time began. And then in verse 30, this relationship led him to predestine or choose us as his own even before time began. The next link of this chain in verse 30 is that God also called us. That is, at some point in our lives, he led us to become Christians by putting our trust in Jesus Christ. And immediately upon becoming Christians, he justified us. That is, he declared us to be right with him. So we have four links in the chain. God foreknew us. He predestined us, he called us, he justified us, and finally, he will glorify us. That is, he will make us just like his glorious son, 
who reigns with him over all creation. So this unbreakable chain is another way of describing our hope. But the point of all of this, the very most important words of verses 29 and 30 are God and he. Fancy sounding words like foreknew and predestined and called and justified and glorified, they are secondary only to the fact that God is the subject of all of them. It is God who knew us. It is God who predestined and called us. God justifies. God glorifies. You see, God's purpose for us cannot fail because he does it. This is the triumph of God's love. Nothing and no one can stand in his way of bringing us to glory. God is the one who ensures your salvation no matter what may happen in our present circumstances. And that is what Paul celebrates for the rest of the passage. I think this is some of the most powerful oratory, replete with a series of those rhetorical questions, the ones that you're not supposed to answer out loud. But I'm going to do that because what I really think is that they, they make more sense for us if we just shoot in the occasional answer to those questions. I'm just going to read them out and invite you to follow along in your Bibles as we see this celebration of the certainty of our future hope. So verse 31 what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? No one. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will God not also, along with Jesus, graciously give us all things? No, he gives us everything with Jesus. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? No one. It is God who justifies. So who then is the one who condemns? No one. Is it Jesus Christ who died? More than that, who was raised to life, who is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us? No, of course not. Back in verse 26 there, we had the Spirit interceding for us in prayer. Now we've got Jesus doing exactly the same thing, praying, pleading, persuading God of our case. So he's on our side as well. We've got everything going for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. No as it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul's quoting Psalm 44. God both allows suffering and he delivers us from it. That's the point of the psalm. So here's now the conclusion. Paul answers this long list of rhetorical questions with one triumphant no. Verse 37, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. God's triumph is something that he works in us and shares with us. In all these things, whatever suffering, whatever circumstance we might encounter in our present, 
we are triumphant and we are winners, we can persevere. How? Only through God who loves us. Our victory, our triumph, our ultimate security all relies on God and not on us. I find that very comforting. So climactically, because of the character and the purpose of God, Paul says in verse 38, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what Paul gives us here as he draws together our present and our future, the two are united by hope. As Paul does this, we have a foundation for living that is unlike any other. It is because of God's rock-solid faithfulness that we are free now to love and to serve others. In uncertain times, where we're being forced to isolate, to hunker down and to look after ourselves, where our borders are shut, where every stranger could be a potential threat, our hope propels us beyond ourselves to care for others. Obviously, we're going to be very wise about how we do this. Our initial enthusiasm for working remotely, or remotely working as some are, as that wanes, as infection rates increase and perhaps the inevitable consequences will follow on, right then is when our Christian faith in the coming of the Lord's kingdom changes everything. That's what our hope is doing. At that moment, standing on the promises of God, we turn to love others as an expression of our love for God. To be clear, I'm not talking about an opportunistic growth strategy. That's not the opportunity in this crisis. Our opportunity is to display the glory of God through our selfless, practical love. We show that we are Jesus' disciples. We reflect his character and therefore we give glory to God. Our greatest joy is when God is glorified the most. Already, I've already heard some, some great examples of people in this church doing just this. I heard of a mum and daughter who door knocked their street in Roseville uh, with a gift of a roll of toilet paper and a little card. And on the little card was their contact details and they simply said, if there's any way that we can help, please give us a call. Apparently, already the calls have come. Isn't that a wonderful thing to do? Imagine if that could be replicated in every street in our community, members of our church. That would be wonderful. Not only has this one family disrupted the whole toilet paper economy by giving it away, they have displayed the love of God. So we have an opportunity at this time to display God's glory and God's love. Let's not waste it. Let's not waste this opportunity. But let's remember that we are free 
in all manner of creative ways, we are free because of our unshakable hope to serve and to love. Will you pray with me? Our great God, we thank you for the salvation that you've given us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for our future. We thank you for the hope that we have that cannot be shaken, that cannot be undermined or devalued or cheapened in any way. We are so grateful, our Father, that you have saved us in Christ. And we pray that from this position of great security, you would enable us to turn beyond ourselves to look out for others around us. Give us creativity and passion. Give us wisdom and carefulness that we might love them well. To your greater glory, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.